Welcome back to Three Decades of Tragedy, A History of the Thirty Years' War. To recap last episode, we went over the process of the creation of the Bohemian Crown, or at least the claiming of it by someone that's not Ferdinand. And for those of you confused or noticed a mistake, when I was talking about the whole Golden Age thing, I meant to say Frederick, not Ferdinand. Sorry about that. But yeah, what seemed to be a bright light for the future of the Rebellion wasn't necessarily that way. And today, we're going to talk about the Crown of Hungary and the potential involvement of the Ottomans and the Polish. Just before we start, I want to mention about the Patreon. If you wish to support me, by all means, I would love that. But otherwise, I'm still going to put out content for free, aside from the things specified on my Patreon. And also, thanks Albrecht for being the first patron. Thank you, dude. But starting out, we're going to talk about Bethlehem Gabor, or Gabriel Bethlehem. Bethlehem is his last name. That's the order of it that I saw. But he was born... On November 15th, 1580, he was orphaned at a young age along with his brother Stefan, and most likely he was educated under the court of Sigismund Bathroy, but there really isn't a ton of primary evidence to suggest this. Like, it's most likely that way, but we're not 100% sure. He later served against the Ottomans during the 1590s and under Andrew Bathroy against Michael the Brave, and also just in general during the, this anarchic period of the early 1600s in Transylvania, aka, you know, Dracula's home. There's a whole heap of history there, as one of my Romanian friends online will say, but this is not about that. During the peace period leading up to the war, he grew in importance and became a primary supporter and beneficiary of, of Stefan Bakowski, or Bakowski, who was the Prince of Transylvania and his successor, another Bathroy. He fell out of favor among the Bathroy family by 1613, and he fled to the Ottomans for safety. After the Bathroy prince died, he was installed as the Prince of Transylvania in 1613 and formally recognized as the Prince of Transylvania in 1615 by Matthias. As for his policies, he was a proponent of education, whether that be internal schools or sending people out to other schools in Europe, supporting the arts and industries of Transylvania in a nationalized, like, fixing prices, making sure that the country was benefiting from its own resources. Whether they disagree or not, that's what he did. And he also was a big supporter of Protestant rights in his territory due to him being a Calvinist, which he became when he was young, well, relatively young. He's important to note because he will be the central figure of this episode. But moving on to the crown, Bethlehem, who was pretty much the best option for the rebels, he offered his support to the rebels with the assumption that if they supported his bid for the throne, while the crown of Hungary, it would improve his position among the Hungarian nobility, showing that he had international support. One of the issues that he ran into was many of the nobility of Hungary did not want to get involved in the war, including many Protestants, as we keep seeing throughout this war so far. Interestingly enough, he did manage to secure the support from the Ottomans, which included a deal for Turkish infantry as auxiliaries. For a short history of Ottomans, the, the Ottomans were obviously Islamic, but for many Protestants, they viewed, especially during this time period and the Thirty Years' War, they viewed Islam and the Ottomans as a safer alternative compared to the Catholics. Because under many Islamic countries during the Ottomans, basically, you were a second-class citizen, but as long as you paid your taxes, which included a, an extra tax if you weren't an Islamic or a Muslim, you were generally left alone to your own business. They were a bit cosmopolitan in that way. The reason why he chose to act against the Habsburgs and ask the Bohemians for support was, one, he was Protestant, and two, he thought they were wealthy and would be able to provide him money for joining the war. Basically, if you give me money, I can bring troops in to assist you guys. Because he wanted more, basically. So instead of waiting for sort of official support, he chose to act against the Habsburgs in order to sort of encourage people to 
support his claim to the Hungarian throne. Basically, he needed enough support to force the process to remove the crown of Hungary from Ferdinand and give it to somebody else. So some military victories would reinforce his claim. He gathered around 35,000 men to advance into Austria and claim Vienna and Pressburg along the way, where the Hungarian nobility were gathering, as in Pressburg. He delayed his advance in order to gather nobility to proclaim him the protector of Hungary, which was a way to make him the unofficial king and take the rug out of his rivals. Seeing as he was given that empty title at the moment, but it was still a political feather in his hat, so to speak, uh, he advanced in Morav- into Moravia, which we've talked about before, and claimed many troops who defected to his cause. And he then defeated a Habsburg army that was sent to stop him. This meant that the Habsburgs and the Imperial Army had to stop whatever they were planning and divert from where they were in order to intercept his army who was heading to Vienna. Seeing as this was the third time someone was heading to Vienna and maybe reach it, which that's a lot for a war, but they've gotten lucky in the fact that the enemy didn't have heavy siege equipment. One of the people that actually had to divert was McCoy, who had around 18,000 troops, who was currently advancing towards Prague in the later half of the year, and he left behind around 5,000 men to guard his current location before he moved out, which showed that this guy was a threat and the Habsburgs were really worried about him. And another thing to keep in mind, during this time period, Frederick was being crowned and the Confederation was being created and organized. So, so you know that this is sort of going alongside whatever's happening with them. And inevitably, due to the advancing army, which was 35,000 is nothing to sneeze at, refugees began fleeing to lower Austria, and the Habsburgs, all they could really do against him at this point was destroy bridges and ways to cross the Danube River that would give them access to lower Austria. It did delay them for a little bit, but not as much as they wanted. Bethlen then captured his rivals and forced the Diet to convene on November 18th which started the process of removing Ferdinand as the king of Hungary. That was something that could be done in the background as he was doing the military campaigning, so he just wanted to start that as early as possible. They then combined with the forces of Bohemia, which was Thurn and his guys, as they were approaching Lower Austria, and by November 21st, they had crossed the Danube and gotten into Austria, and defeated troops led by Bakoy, who was attempting to delay them. He wasn't sure he was going to win, but enough that they could gather forces, prepare for the siege, that sort of deal. Eventually, they once again reached the gates of Vienna, which, I remind you, is the third time this has happened, but this time the Habsburgs were better prepared for this siege. They had months and months of food stored for the 20,000 garrison and the, and the around 75,000 civilians within the city. And once again, the rebels also lacked heavy artillery, which meant taking it by force was not really going to be possible. On top of that, Bakoy committed scorched earth around the city, which scorched earth, for those of you who don't know, is basically burning resources, towns, food, so the enemy can't use it. If I can't have it, you can't have it. The 42,000 troops that were besieging the city were unable to gather supplies in the short term, so supplies were low during the time that they besieged the city. The weather also began to worsen and began to rain, just bad weather, began to get colder, which decreased the morale among the besiegers, and also makes their guns less effective because water and gunpowder don't mix well. And the inevitable side effect of a lot of troops sitting around a town is disease began to spread throughout the camp, which reduced the combat strength of the rebels by half, which, while some of them were alive, they were weakened by disease, they couldn't fight as well. It was just a bad time all around. They were expecting Turkish auxiliaries to come and assist, 
Auxiliaries are secondary troops that aren't necessarily primary troops of the country, but sort of more su- support troops, non-native troops of that country. And those Turkish auxiliaries hadn't shown yet, which was also putting a damper on morale. The last major problem with the siege was that there was a lot of tension among the Bohemians and the Hungarians. The lack of cooperation made it harder for the command structure to get along that whole deal, and especially because of the lack of food, being hungry and tired makes people more irritable and just, it's just a bad time all around. The siege was broken about a week later when the, the news of attacks in Transylvania became known. So, effectively, Bethlehem had to call back his troops to Transylvania, and the Bohemians actually stayed in Lower Austria, but everyone else sort of dispersed and headed back home, realizing the siege was pointless. They didn't maintain the siege, but they sort of stayed in Lower Austria as looting, keeping the enemy down, that sort of deal. So an overview of the section, the fight for the crown of Hungary was a major importance to the rebels, which would give them another ally. But like before, their initial military goals were not as successful as they wanted, which, again, isn't a good look for a rebellion that they keep having this problem. But to be fair, they were fighting a larger force that had more resources to call upon in theory. And interestingly enough, both sides wanted to call upon other allies who weren't just part of the Holy Roman Empire. The first major group that the Imperial Army slash the Habsburgs wanted to call upon was the Polish. The Polish were very Catholic, and the Polish had also signed a agreement with the, the HRE that they would support them in cases of major rebellions, especially because the the current emperor's sister was married to the king of Poland. And, and for those of you who don't know, Poland at this point was called the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, which was basically an elective monarchy, which combined Poland and Lithuania. I will post a map of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, or the PLC for short. So while the Poles had some urge to join, they were at the moment focused on expanding into the Baltic, and the HRE had also previously not helped Poland against Sweden, which we will be covering much, much later in this podcast in a very short-term manner just to get across what was going on. The current ruler of Poland, Sigismund III, did not want to get involved at the war at the moment. He There was issues of expansion and other sort of internal things going on, so... And the Habsburgs even offered them to give some, give up some of the claims that they had on Polish territory and, and even offer them some of the HRE territory. But the Sigismund III really didn't want to join this war. So, But instead of saying no directly, he said, I can't join it, but I will offer the services of 30,000 Cossacks called the Lizowski, who were basically a fast mobile cavalry unit that didn't wear armor. The Cossacks were a, I don't think nomadic, but they were more step type warriors who fast moving, little armor, could hit enemies fast and hard, that sort of deal. These guys were sort of called that because that was the name of the original commanding officer from a century or two before, and they sort of became known as that. They were a cavalry unit. When people spoke with them, they said, God would not want them and the devil would be afraid of them. One, due to this, the brutality, and two, is they tended to be on the lookout for loot and pillaging, which meant that even in friendly territory, they would terrorize civilian populations and sort of want to get money on top of just regular mercenary pay. One of the issues the Habsburg had with working with them was the Cossacks refused to fight too far into the HRE. Basically, once you got into the internal part of what is now Germany, Austria, and the Czech Republic, there was a lot more castles, hills... Less rolling fields and large steplands. Uh, and I uh, seeing as they were like cavalry, that was not to their advantage. This issue was partially resolved 
by having around 4,000 of these troops join 3,000 Cossacks that were be- being commanded by Georgi Hamonai, who was a rival to Bethlehem and was exiled by Bethlehem after he effectively claimed the after after he effectively claimed the Diet. Hamona actually won a small battle against one of Bethlehem's commanders, who had around 4,000 troops, who, as they battled, Hamonai used the feigned retreat tactic, which, for those of you who are not military-type people, that's basically when you intentionally pull back troops and make it look like they're running away, which, if done right, the enemy, seeing what looks like a route, a retreat, they will chase after the enemy, breaking their discipline and cohesion, which, after a certain point, when they're separated from their line enough, you, you turn around and charge into them because they're disorganized. It takes a well oiled and well-trained army to effectively pull it off, but when it's done, it's very effective. This is kind of, this is a common tactic of step tribes, and many of you know the Mongols would do this a lot. Seeing that Bethlehem was getting threatened by one of his rivals, the Ottomans sent forces to deal with a Polish relief army that was coming to assist Hamonai. They were not going to get involved with the war against Austria. They were just there to deal with the Polish. They sent a bunch of Tartars, who were a catch-all term for steppe nomad warriors, and a bunch of regular infantry to deal with the Polish in Moldavia, and that sort of defeated them. Without getting too far off the point, the Polish and Ottomans began a war that would go on for another year or two, which would keep them out of the rebellion as a whole in the Thirty Years' War. So basically they were not involved, which, as stated in one of my primary books, many people in Poland and throughout history view Poland's non-involvement in the Thirty Years' War as a missed opportunity. It could have changed the plot. The Polish could bring tens of thousands of men, which would not have been good for the Protestants, but we'll never know. Unfortunately for them, Bethlehem had basically secured its political support and had most of Hamonai's supporters arrested, but that sort of came at the cost of he had to sort of bow to the Hungarian Diet and give a eight-month truth to the Habsburgs, because they didn't necessarily want war front. It didn't mean the war was over, just meant they weren't fighting for eight months. And with this truce, the Lodowski were not actually allowed back into Poland. But what they did was they became clients, or they became the for- part of the forces of the Imperial Army. And between January and July of 1620, they, they steadily grew the Imperial forces by around... 19,200 men. Not all at once, but over that time period. These forces allowed Bokoy to launch an offensive war against Thurn in between March and early June of 1620, who were to his north. On the other side, the rebels also received many reinforcements from Bohemia, as well as 8,000 Hungarians and Transylvanians by by Bethlehem, which gave them a force of around 33,000 to 35,000 troops. And now that the two were relatively unified, and Bethlehem was pretty much going to become the king of Hungary, Frederick and Bethlehem sent a delegation to Constantinople, which is modern-day Istanbul. But fun fact, it didn't actually become Istanbul until after World War I. So if someone says uh, call it Istanbul in the, the 17th century or 19th century, it was still Constantinople. But back on topic, they sent that delegation to ask for Ottoman support in the war. The Ottomans promised them 60,000 auxiliaries, and despite some complaints from other leaders about the risk of this, the Protestants found it easier to deal with working with Islam than the Catholics. The cost of this alliance was that Bohemia would become a tributary state of the Ottomans in order to gain their support. Tributary means that they had to give part of their taxes to the Ottomans every year, or whenever taxes are done. Bribes were sent to Constantinople, which was about 70,000 florins, uh, that were they were commonly high value currency in Europe. I don't know the conversion rate. It was a good chunk of money, and around three hundred thousand was sent to Bethlehem by Frederick, who actually sold some of his own personal jewelry to raise the money sent to Hungary and Transylvania. And the final part to go over here is Bethlehem was finally crowned the king of Hungary in the second half of the year, second half of the year sixteen twenty. 
After he was crowned, the clerical estates and the nobility who opposed them had their lands and wealth taken, which meant Catholic churches and and monasteries had their lands taken and they're taken for the war effort. Ferdinand tried to disband the Diet in order to stop this procedure from happening, but unfortunately, in reality, Bethlehem supporters crowned him King of Hungary and Ferdinand could do nothing about that, especially because Bethlehem had the wider public support within Hungary. It is interesting to note that the Croatian Diet actually aligned itself with the Habsburgs and rejected the diplomatic overtures of the Hungarian Diet for an alliance. They were heavily Catholic still, which meant they were more for the Habsburgs than the rebels. The long and short of it for this section. The rebels and the Habsburgs were both looking for international allies, but the best they could get was financial support and some troops, or nothing at all in case of the Ottomans. So, effectively, this war was still being fought as an internal revolt rather than any sort of international support. It won't last away for the whole war, but for now, it's relatively self-contained and not exploding to the Thirty Years' War that we know that it becomes. I want to thank you for listening and looking at the numbers that I'm getting. I have a steady supply of people coming in. And you guys you guys rock. Please keep tuning in. Check out social media, the Facebook page, uh, threedecadesoftragedy.com, or email me at 3decot at gmail.com. If you're interested, check out the Patreon. Next week, we will be covering the Habsburg side of the war in terms of gathering forces and potentially covering some of the build-up to the Battle of White Mountain, which is going to be the climax of this season of the podcast. See you next time.